Improvise. Multiverse is real. Improvise. Compelling. Innovative. Improvisation. It's magic. You know, make something up. Welcome to Think Like an Improviser. I'm Jeremy Richards. Brian Johnson is the founder and CEO of Heroic Public Benefit Corporation. He's also the author of the new book, Arate, Activate Your Heroic Potential, out on November 14th. As a founder and CEO, he's made crowdfunding history and built and sold two social platforms. As a philosopher and teacher, he's helped millions of people from around the world, trained over 10,000 heroic coaches from over 100 countries, and created a protocol that science says changes lives. In this interview, Brian also reveals how he thinks like an improviser and how finding the right balance of structure and spontaneity is key to a meaningful life. Hey, Brian, always good to see you. Jeremy, great to see you. Now, this is Think Like an Improviser, as you know, and even though you're not a theatrical or a musical improviser per se, I wanted to talk to you because I feel like you really are someone who embodies that idea of thinking like an improviser. And I know you're a fan of the book Improv Wisdom, for example. And I'm just curious mm -hmm. from your take, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and how an improvising mindset might play into that? Yeah, for me, I feel most like groundedly improvisational when I have proper structures in my life. So as you know, I'm all about the basic fundamentals and I'm, I'm pretty boring in many ways so I can feel the, and trust my intuition. So the basic things like eating and moving and, and sleeping well, and then focusing my mind through meditation. And then I try to tap into and connect to the best version of myself and then trust myself and then improvise to use your word. But I'm constantly trying to connect to and get myself energized and focus my attention on what I think is most important right now and then be fully present to that and be willing to take in the data as it comes, say yes to it, to channel Patricia Ryan Madsen, you know, and then really allow myself to learn as I iterate and go all in with each kind of step in the process, knowing it's dynamic, knowing it's messy. But when I have the structures in my life that I can kind of rely on, I find myself more confident in my ability to go for it, you know, and to really leap at opportunities and then to adapt as necessary. That's beautiful. So when you have those reliable structures in place, that gives you more freedom to be creative, to be spontaneous and responsive. A hundred percent. And then I'm, I'm extremely structured and I'm also extremely spontaneous. Like there's this level of, I like to do both with a, a dynamicism. Now my risk is I tend to, like Dan Siegel has that great metaphor that a healthy human being is psychologically flexible. And he says, it's like a river. And the river has banks of spontaneity and structure. If you flood one or the other, spontaneity flooded is chaos. You don't have enough structure. Or if you flood the other side of structure, you become rigid. Now, my risk is overly structured rigidity, where if things don't go exactly the way that I want them to in my protocols, and it's like, wait, I need the structure. But I do it because I really want to be able to trust myself um, in the moment, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, that's how I approach it. Fantastic. There's a book you'd probably love by 
Will Hines called Pirate Robot Ninja that talks about the different approaches to theatrical improv. And the pirate is the gung-ho, knife in the teeth, swinging from the chandeliers, emotional. <laughs> and then the, the robot, which I kind of tend toward, I'm, I'm like you, I'm a bit structured, is more analytical, seeing the patterns, responding there. And what they call the best of both worlds is the ninja who can be structured when needed, be rule-based as it's appropriate, and then also be emotional and present and emo and just in the scene as well. Super cool. Oh, I hadn't heard that before. I love it. My kids will love it too. <laughs> yeah, it's a good metaphor for kids. Pirate Robot That's Ninja. Fantastic. Yeah. I was just revisiting your story coming out of college and the arc of your career and the different twists and turns that you talk about in your book. And there seems to be an element of improvisation writ large in that as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your origin story to where you ended up now? That's a really cool connection. Like, as you said that, I felt the truth in that from my own life viewed from not just the moment to moment or day to day, but from the year to year and decade to decade. It's totally been improvisational and unpredictable, yet I trusted myself in important moments. But origin story is youngest of five kids, blue collar family, father worked in a grocery store, struggled with alcohol. His father struggled with alcohol, ended his own life. And that's important for me because there's a, you know, I can laugh now, but there's, you know, I like to say I lost what appears to be both the genetic and the environmental lottery in that one. First generation college student. I had my own psychological challenges, really up, really down, contemplated the ending my own life after dropping out of law school, which was one of the big decisions I made as a young man. And just had a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, didn't have any of these things that we're going to talk about today in my life. It wasn't how I was raised. And that's kind of the origin story. And we can talk about what I did with that. But I think, you know, my own conservative upbringing and my own suffering has really been the source of kind of building the scaffolding psychologically and creatively that I think has been part of the gift that I can now give, knowing what it feels like to feel the depths of despair and to now feel, you know, more sustainable levels of, of meaning and joy. And, and also what I did that worked for me that I uh, hopefully can share to create structure um, for individuals to both deal with their own challenges, but to go to the next, next, next level um, and whoever they feel called to be. Beautiful. I really appreciate you sharing the vulnerable side of that as well. And I think it speaks to the depth that you're able to bring to your work and the authenticity. Also, you talk about the unpredictability of your trajectory, just in terms of what do I do with my life, as a lot of people feel <laughs> in their early 20s or early 40s or early 70s for that matter. But you were initially looking to go into law school and then went on to business and then eventually came into heroic, right? I mean, there's a lot more in between there, but. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because each, each step of the way, I very much improvised. I was willing to step off the, the kind of edge and ledge and, and trust that the process would inform what the right next steps were. So I've spent half of the last 25 years, as you know, as a founder, CEO, built and sold to social platforms before Facebook. And the other half of the time I spent reading and writing and thinking and teaching as a philosopher, a lover of wisdom. But e each important um, step in the process mirrored not only improvisational theory, but the hero's journey, which I think are, are very parallel and, and similar to one another. In that, I, I just knew that the life I was living wasn't the life I was meant to be living at certain junctures of my life. 
And I heard that call to adventure, you know, to enter the far forest at the darkest point, as Campbell would say. And I had the courage to pursue that with less grace in the beginning, in the first few iterations through that process than I, than I have now. But that, you know, the, the hero being willing to answer the call to adventure, battling the metaphorical dragons, and then hopefully winning or learning, and then winning or learning and winning and returning with the boon, with the transformed consciousness and a gift to give to the world. That's, that's been my, in hindsight, more clearly the arc that I've taken, which I think is kind of a macro take on the improv. I've never made that connection quite explicitly like that, but I can see the parallels in general and in particular with my life. Yeah, I can see Kierkegaard's notion that life is lived forward and understood backwards. Hmm. Yeah. Ralph Waldo Emerson says the same thing, you know, like you get far enough away and you see that the zigs and the zags, the ship was actually going straight from Boston to London, you know, but, but you're going zig and zag and from a proper uh, perspective, it all, it all coheres and it all makes sense. That notion from Joseph Campbell as well, another connection to improv there where he is a spiritual grandfather of many storytellers. And hmm. we often think about him, especially in what we call long form improvisation rather than the zip zap zap quick stuff it's, it's really profound <laughs> and i'm curious knowing that you are very business minded but also very creative in your work what role does creativity play for you you know uh, a few things come to mind cheek sent me high and peter drucker so cheeks me high cheek sent me high founder of the positive psychology movement who coined the word flow of course Frankly, his book, Creativity, he wrote Flow and then he wrote Creativity and some other books. Creativity is actually my favorite of his books. Me too. He talks about the creative individual and what it means to be truly creative. But then, then I think of Peter Drucker. So Csikszentmihalyi invited Drucker into his study where he was studying these luminaries of true creativity. And Drucker replied saying a couple of things that I find interesting. First, Professor Csikszentmihalyi, I respect you so much, I paraphrase, but I'm afraid we have two issues here. One, if I responded to requests like yours, as much as I admire you, I wouldn't have time to do what you call creativity. So I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to participate. I just love the audacity of that. I have a very large waste paper basket for things that are not my thing. But then he said, you know, I'm not sure what creativity is. I plod. I just show up and I do my best. And to me, that's, that's the essence of my practice and my work is I show up. And then I show up again, and then I show up again, especially when I don't feel like it. And I found that that people can view some of the things I've done as creative. I'm just trying to show up. I'm trying to be productive and to follow my my instincts creatively. And I take pride in, in being a craftsman in what I do, and I try to um, do my best. And I actually think it's both, you know, plotting and the creativity. But ultimately what I'm trying to do to go back to the initial part of our chat is I'm trying to create the structures through which I can connect to the best version of myself, a best version of myself such that it can be expressed in my work and in my love, by the way, with my kids, with you right now, et cetera. The ancient Greeks called that guiding spirit our daimon. And the entire purpose of life was to connect to your daimon. Well, the Romans had a word for your daimon as well. As you know, it was genius. 
So the Greeks called it your daimon, the, the Romans called it your genius. And in Roman times, everyone was said to have their own genius. And when you did anything amazing, it was your genius who did it. But the creative artist's job is to allow their genius or their daimon to come through. That's how I see my job. And that's how what I do in everything we do, whether we're training coaches or we're training elite athletes or military officers or everyday heroes. That's my job to connect to my best self through these practices and then to help others do the same in their own idiosyncratic ways. I love that. And your discipline is unparalleled from what I can witness, at least in the work that you put out, how you show up, your availability to the folks who are committed to heroic as well in your, your daily, almost every single day coaching sessions. And to that end, it sounds like one of your driving disciplines is the concept you talk about sometimes, which is the worse you feel, the more committed you are. Which is this is, I mean, goosebumps you say that, Jeremy. That's that's as you know, really, really important philosophical frame for me. It, it's it's the second objective in our coach program. It's the second objective in the book. So the first objective is you got to know the ultimate game. Most people, as you know, I say, are, are seduced to play the wrong game. They're going after the, the extrinsic stuff. Longer chat. But then you got to know rule number one of the game, which is it's supposed to be hard. And so most people, the moment life gets hard and they get challenged, at least me and my old self and my my less than connected self, you do the stupidest things. That's when you invite the circus into town, as I like to say, and you do the, quote, vicious things right when you need to do the most virtuous. So it was Phil Stutz who introduced me to the idea of what he calls emotional stamina. I call it anti-fragile confidence. But he says, look, the worse you feel, the more committed you need to be to your protocol. The worse you feel, the more committed you are to your protocol. Now, when you get that, everything changes because the things that used to, to knock you off the rails become the very thing that gets you even more on track. And again, I call that anti-fragile confidence, but it presupposes you have a protocol. If you don't have a protocol, then, then you're just flying blind, you know? So what's your checklist? A pilot has a checklist. You would never get on an airplane unless the pilot went through their checklist. A surgeon who doesn't have a checklist will kill over 40% more people than someone who does. Simple checklist, basic stuff. We're operating on this side of the body. We're doing this, we're doing that. Very basic things. Goosebumps again. We need checklists. We need to know who we are and what we do when we're at our best. And we need to do those things consistently, especially when we're at our worst. And when we get that, we really get that, everything changes. All of a sudden, the things that used to knock us out become the things that strengthen us. And you cultivate this deep sense of trust in yourself that you can handle whatever life throws at you. It's the thing I'm most um, excited about and in many ways proud of in terms of creatively operationalizing that idea and helping people really, really lock in the gains that they've created and create a life of really deep, sustainable, fundamentally, a really stable foundation to know they have what it takes to meet life's challenges. Right. I can sense the power and the nuance that goes into that as well, because I went through the heroic coaching program. I'm still learning a couple of years later and talking to an executive coaching client and trying to explain this concept of the worse you feel, the more committed you are. Her immediate gut reaction was, how do I follow that without just driving more burnout? 
Yeah, well, you do the things that prevent burnout in the first place. So most of the time when people are talking about burnout, I mean, if I'm dealing with someone who's got burnout, the first thing I want to know is how are you eating? How are you moving? How are you sleeping? And not in that order. I'd actually start with their sleeping. And I almost certainly, I would I'd want to do a little inventory here. What you, what you measure improves. So what time did you go to bed last night? Because today started last night. As you know, that's my obsession. So did you stay up late blowing yourself up with either emails or Netflix shows or whatever? All right, well, how are you doing on your five, six, seven hours of sleep even, right? I train my sleep like I'm a world-class athlete. I'm in bed for eight to nine plus hours a night. I'm aiming for eight hours of sleep a night, which requires me to be in bed for nine hours a night. Now I work hard especially now as I get ready to launch the book. I'm putting in 12, 13, 14, 15 hour days when I'm, when I'm at my edge of work. Now I'm oscillating between them, but I never, ever, ever, ever compromise my basic fundamentals, eating, moving, and sleeping. You couldn't pay me to stay up late and to grind or to watch things online and blow an hour or two of sleep. So if I'm dealing with someone who's got burnout, the first thing I do is go get an extra hour of sleep. Full stop. And then I want to know, are you, how are you eating? If you're over consuming refined foods and, and processed foods, well, your gut produces 80 to 90% of your body's serotonin, the simplified feel good hormone. That's a powerful stat. You know, your physiology is driving a lot more of your psychology than you think. So what I'm suggesting is not going harder. What I'm suggesting is step back, train your recovery better. Tall Ben Shahar says, it's not that you work too hard. It's that you don't recover enough. World-class performers train their recovery. Average, mediocre, burned out performers don't, to put it bluntly. And you have to be on when you're on and then be off when you're off. When I start my day, I decide when I'm gonna end it. And there are exceptions to it when I work late, but I know I'm working late and I'm still in bed for nine hours. Eight minimum, target eight and a half, nine hours. Today I was in bed for eight hours and 20 minutes. I got seven hours of sleep, which is on the lighter side for me. Night before I got eight hours and something, 35 minutes of sleep in bed for nine and a half hours. So training our recovery is super important. So you take that same ambition and you point it into the things you might be ignoring that because you're ignoring them are leading to enervation and you prioritize making sure your energy is at a really, really high level because scientists say your vitality, your zest is the number one predictor of your well-being. You have to prioritize it. Even Stephen Covey's seven habits. First habit is be proactive. Take control of your life. Seventh habit is sharpen your saw, renewal. So the person who's in, he uses the metaphor, and I'll, I'll wrap this up. He uses the metaphor of an individual walking into a forest and you see someone sawing and sawing and sawing away at this tree. They're not getting anywhere. And you say, hey, I think you may want to slow down and sharpen your saw. The person who's burned out and exhausted and not getting anywhere says, I'm too busy to slow down and sharpen the saw. Metaphor being an obvious moral of the story being don't be that guy or gal. Slow down, take the time to replenish yourself, renew yourself. And I say, don't just sharpen the saw, build a chainsaw. My energy is my number one priority, okay. full stop. You know, I get more done in less time when I am energized than I will ever get done, tired, fatigued, burned out, et cetera. So the moment I feel that burnout arising, which I do all the time, I'm feeling a little bit on my edge and I wanna feel that because I'm trying to find my edge. But when I feel that, literally right now, I'll take a deep breath. 
Welcome to Think Like an Improviser. I'm Jeremy Richards. Brian Johnson is the founder and CEO of Heroic Public Benefit Corporation. He's also the author of the new book, Arate, Activate Your Heroic Potential, out on November 14th. As a founder and CEO, he's made crowdfunding history and built and sold two social platforms. As a philosopher and teacher, he's helped millions of people from around the world, trained over 10,000 heroic coaches from over 100 countries, and created a protocol that science says changes lives. In this interview, Brian also reveals how he thinks like an improviser and how finding the right balance of structure and spontaneity is key to a meaningful life. Can I ground myself? Oh, I'm going fast. All right, when I'm doing the dishes, I'm breathing deeply. I'm using those moments to ground, to calm down, to create energized tranquility, and then prioritizing the things we discussed. The sleeping, I didn't talk about movement, but we got to get out and move. But again, getting me fired up. That's how I personally deal with it. And then you find that creative edge where we're sustainably energized. And you can only do that by deliberately training it from my perspective. That resonates with me big time, especially around sleep, because I've been diagnosed with mild to moderate sleep apnea for a couple of decades. Obstacles make me stronger. It's a lot of what's <laughs> driven my health obsession as well. And at the same time, for example, last night, went to jujitsu, had to get up early today. I don't check my aura ring score in the morning because I know it might have that nocebo effect, right? They've done studies on this as well, where oh, people yeah. are, are convinced because their sleep score is low that they're going to have a bad day and then it's self-perpetuating. So do you think that part of that, and maybe it's related to the Dan Siegel flow balance there, is part of that also being aware of something like orthosomnia, of being too obsessed with some of these fundamentals that... So, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Finish. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think it, it pretty much ends there. Can we get too obsessed with the fundamentals that we're overly hard on ourselves? Yes. It, there are a lot of things in that phrase, in that sentence. Yes. Too much of a good thing is not a good thing. This is the virtuous mean. There's the vice of excess. Then there's the vice of deficiency. Caring too little, caring too much. You want to find that wise balance. Either too much or too little is uh, vicious vis-a-vis -vis virtuous. And then, you know, Tal Ben-Shahar's ideas, again, on perfectionism, having really high standards is important, but there are actually two forms of perfectionism. One's healthy, one's unhealthy. The unhealthy perfectionist thinks they can actually do all the things they want to do. You know, working 16 hours a day, getting 10 hours of sleep, being a world-class athlete and a really creative individual, and they blow themselves up, eating disorders, depression, even insomnia, anxiety, all these things are going to be correlated with that. The optimalist is what he calls the healthy perfectionist. They also have high standards, but they do one very important thing. They embrace the constraints of reality. And Tall was a, a national champion Israeli squash player. He couldn't be a world-class athlete, the husband and father, and the creator that he wanted to be. There's not enough time in the day to do all those things. He had to embrace the constraints of reality. Now, that's the high level. Concretely, unsolicitedly, but, but using it abstractly, I wouldn't personally, nor if I were you, train at night. Because your body temperature is going up, you're activating yourself in a way that is going to make it very difficult to get a good night of sleep. So personally, knowing what I know about myself and how, how important it is for me to get a good night of sleep, 
I train in the morning. So I'm never going to train hard past like 2 p.m., 3 p.m. even, ever, ever, for two reasons. One, you get a 12-hour mood boost from exercise. You get hope molecules, you get the equivalent of Ritalin and serotonin, et cetera. I don't want to waste that. And two, when you are so energetically, intensely activated, especially in something like jujitsu, under almost certainly if it's at night, artificial lights, now you're getting blue light at a time that you shouldn't be while doing exercise that you would never do at that time of day evolutionarily. And again, for me, I've got a lot of vulnerabilities. You know, I get like a bad night of sleep and I look like I just spent a weekend in Vegas. You know, it's like, what? Like I just, I was really sick as a kid. I frankly have a, a less than optimal immune system in general. And I play those margins really tightly. So if I were struggling with insomnia, I'd pull it all back. I'd have my most intense activities earlier in the day. I'd have a very clear shutdown. And my friend Pilar Gerasimo um, says, you want to turn everything down as you end the day. So, you know, depending on the season, 4, 5, 6 p.m., 7 p.m. But even now, the days are getting so much shorter. Time change is going to make it even shorter. I'm going to go to bed before 7 p.m. Because the sun's going to set at 5 where I'm at. So it's going to set at 5, 5.15. I set my clock on the sunrise and the sunset, not an arbitrary clock, right? So I'm going to bed an hour or so, maybe an hour and a half after the sun sets, unapologetically. Then I'm getting up naturally 10 hours after I went to bed with eight and a half to nine hours of sleep, depending on whether I got up in the middle of the night thinking about something. But I structure my entire life around getting a good night of sleep because it's that important to me. Even my wife and I, our first date 17 years ago was a 9.30 a.m. hike. I'd done enough of the bar hopping. I don't need to meet a woman at 9.30 at night or 11.30 at night in a bar. We had our first date on a hike, you know, and then we go to the grocery store. after, And it's like architecting our lives such that we're able to create, again, the relationship to our daimon, to our genius, our best selves, unapologetically in a world that is 80% of us are suffering from some form of mental challenge, anxiety, depression, whatever it is. And a lot of the habits we take for granted just aren't helping um, those things. And again, now you're getting me fired up going into the weeds. But that, that's how I approach it, which has been helpful it. for me. I appreciate the spot coaching there. I will say for me, anecdotally, I work out earlier in the day, six days a week. One day a week, I'm doing jujitsu right now, 6 to 7 p.m. It is later than I'd appreciate. And it's the, my current constraint in terms of when I can go. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. It might yeah. be something to do with the concurrence of the dopamine, noradrenaline, and oxytocin is a big factor, specifically in grappling arts that people don't talk about much. Yep. But something about that cocktail of neurochemicals from this particular, more than any other exercise, the next day, even though I was ramped up the night before, I feel like a million bucks. Wow, that's, I can feel that. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And six to seven, obviously, and all the other asterisks that go with it. The other thing that I do with an order ring, and Ellen Langer talks about this, the nocebo effect. They've done studies on this exact thing. Bring people into a lab, give them data on how they're doing. Lie to one of the groups and tell them they're doing worse and they'll have less energy. So our perception of the data that's coming in, we need to be very mindful of. So what I do is if I have a lower readiness score or sleep score, I send it to um, a couple of my friends every single morning, right? But I'll literally cross it out. I'll say, hey, a 78, no, 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 88. That's how I'm feeling. I'll like literally have this imprint of let's go. And then also whatever, there are going to be days when you don't have it. 
in, in terms of the readiness, but we're professionals. So then I have fun showing up as my best in those days, you know, with none of the shame and the anxiety, I either made a decision that wasn't the best one, or I deliberately decided in a travel week the other day, I'm out on the road, whatever, you know, like, all right, cool. Like there's something fun about being the guy that can show up on for me, six hours is not a lot of sleep, you know, but six, six and a half hours, whatever. Um, we know how to turn it, turn it on and flip the switch even when we don't have our best. That's what makes great performers great is they know how to perform at their best when they're not at their best. Like that's, that's an exciting creative act when viewed from, I think, the proper lens. And to state the obvious, for me, my life is my most creative act. So creating a life that I'm proud of a day-by-day -day experience in my, in my life in which I show up powerfully in my energy, in my work, in my love, that's by far my most creative act that, again, gives me goosebumps just imagining the resonance I felt, you know, as I imagine our connection via the work we do together, et cetera. Fantastic. And I think that ties into where we evolve into after the fundamentals of eating, sleeping, and moving are really tied down is... And you're familiar with David White, right? Not, I mean, yes, of course, but not, I haven't okay. studied his work, okay. but, I, but I'm excited to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I was able to interview him when I worked in radio many years ago, and it's a story of his I love to tell, and I think would resonate with you, where he talks about speaking with his mentor, David Steindl Rost, in this long evening session of heartfelt discussion. And at, at one point he says, speak to me of exhaustion. And that's the type of thing David White would say, you know, speak to me of exhaustion. As a Welsh-born Welsh poet. And David Steindl Ross says, David, sometimes the answer to exhaustion isn't rest. Sometimes the answer is wholeheartedness. Hmm. Beautiful. I think always the answer is wholeheartedness. You know, that may transcend and includes the action and the, the rest, but oftentimes that exhaustion or lack of vitality and a sense of enthusiasm and real zest for life is because we're, we're not going all in that wholeheartedness as Brene Brown reflects on it too, you know, just that, that willingness to be all in, in life. And that's exactly how, when I was on the road, I actually showed up like my son, my son's 10, now he's 11 years old, you know, things going wrong on his trips. And all that. That's like what makes it fun for him. So just showing up like it's all one big adventure, you know, and really being present and, and maintaining that agency too. Because I think your whole aura thing is it becomes a shame thing. And we, we, we measure our worth based on the extrinsic data, whether it's an aura score or money in the bank or whatever it is that we think we need to, to measure ourselves up against. And there's something about shifting that and just really, really going all in on who we are authentically. It, it's the improv again, you know, where it's we're fully alive. That's what people are feeling in any given performance where there's a soul force to use the phrase that we use. You know, there's a there's an aliveness in the individual that's magnetic and it's magnetic within ourselves. You know, that when we know when we're being our best selves and giving everything we got. But I love that David White in his mentor frame. You mentioned your kids that you talk about a lot in the book as well and in a lot of your work. And I also have an 11-year-old and an eight-year-old, two daughters. And it, it brings up this question that's related to the, the structure versus the spontaneity and, and different forms of balance where 
for example, my 11 year old years ago was diagnosed with sensory processing disorder. So it, it manifests in many ways, for example, emotional challenges and so forth. And I'm trying to, to raise her to be heroic and mm -hmm. kind of, you know, plant some of these seeds the way you do with Emerson and Eleanor. And it's a bit of an uphill challenge, you know, at this age, you're still kind of processing like, okay, that's a little weird or okay, maybe I got that. But I guess my question for you is, where do we find the balance of acknowledging and respecting something that might seem like a semi-fixed trait, like this disorder that she has, that I is a medical challenge, and the ability to say, you can still change your destiny. You still have control over that. It doesn't define who you are. Yeah. So much beauty there. And I, I didn't realize we had that close of a parallel with your two girls and our boy and a girl, 11 and six, of course, vis-a-vis -vis your 11 and eight. I think there's something beautiful about our own idiosyncratic constraints, you know, and each of us having our own challenges, whether it's, and I hesitate with labels too, even Ellen Langer talks about this, you know, the idea of a disorder and all these things. It's like, yes, and, you know, it's a, it's a constraint of her reality that then we get to operate within. You know, and, and there's an opportunity to say, all right, well, we're sensitive in this and this and this way. And then I step back and I, I keep on coming back to you. And we do this with our kids. So my wife has sensitivities when she's vulnerable. She has seizures. So that's just her thing, you know, and she had them years ago and then they were dormant for years. And then she had some time as kind of warped for me now, but maybe like 18 months ago, they started again. But we like to use all of those obstacles as fuels for growth. And that they, they, it, it gives us an opportunity to learn more about what might be going on there. For us, it was mold. We had mold in our house that was mm. exacerbating her condition. That's one of the triggers. It's a neuro, neurotoxin. Well, she's really sensitive to that. And when she is, then these things tend to happen. My son had a concussion just a few weeks ago. He's into chess, you know, so it's, it's a horror of horrible thing for anyone we're like, oh my goodness, he's throwing up after bumping his head, falling out of the hammock. But we use that as an opportunity to, to triple down on the fundamentals, as we say. So I would, as your friend and, and just co-creator here, I'd look at, all right, cool, eating, moving, and sleeping. We've got a beautiful human being that has some sensitivities and vulnerabilities, just like me. Mine is psychological. So mine is my own ups and downs. And again, I may not be here talking to you right now, if I had made different decisions in my life, I was contemplating ending my life at one point, seriously contemplating that. And had I not figured out the importance of sleep, the importance of nutrition, the importance of movement, the fact that my physiology drives a lot of my psychology, I may not be here with you right now for that reason or for cancer or any other number of reasons because I was really sick. So anyway, I'd use that challenge as a parent as an opportunity to control the controllables. And then your question was the structure vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, life happening. But I'd rub my hands together, Carol Dweck style, which is what she says in mindset. And I literally, she tells us to literally as parents, when you are faced with a challenge, rub your hands together and say, oh, I love challenges. That, that's right. And I would literally do that. And I have goosebumps yet again with my son and with Eleanor when they were young. It sounded, it seemed so ridiculous. Yet we, we did that all the time. And embracing the challenges as an opportunity to grow and to use it as fuel for more clarity. And, 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 and I would control the controllables, honoring her beautiful sensitivities that are going to demand, from my vantage point, a higher level of integrity with the basic things that maybe some other kids can get away with, you know? And, and I can't as a human being. My wife and I will 
playfully complain about, geez, everybody else can do this and this and this. I'm doing this and I still experience this. Perfect. Heroic God blessed us with this. It's a long answer to your wonderful frame, but I can feel your love for your daughters, just the power of figuring out how do we as men and as husbands and fathers, you know, and just people committed to raising our kids to be heroic, graft this into a culture that is so not that and mm. make it cool for our kids and something that they're excited about. I think it's the most important creative challenge that we face, frankly, is figuring out how to make this cool, right? Yeah. It just occurred to me, I could imagine you having a kid's book in the future, uh, you know, after our- Dude, we've got it. I've actually got to grab it. So I'm going to grab it right now because I literally just got back from a, a conscious capitalism event and I happened to bring the book. So we've already oh, got, really? yeah, we've oh. already got- Wow. It's a kid's series. I Am Heroic, in which we talk about Arte, we talk about eudaimonia. And then as you know, in my work, I talk a lot about the cardinal virtues of wisdom, discipline, love, and courage. And the virtues science says are most highly correlated with our well-being, which include gratitude, hope, curiosity, zest, and love. So we already have, it's a nine book series with each of the virtues. So we've got, you know, kids, half boys, half girls, all ethnicities who are, you know, I am a wise hero. I am a disciplined hero. I'm a loving hero, courageous hero. So anyway, we're really excited about it. We're going to roll that out in, in 2024. So we've already got the first eight oh, written. Wow. You know, meeting you and knowing that you went through, you know, you've been such a big part of our community. My co-author is a heroic coach. USA Today best-selling kids book author who said, I'd love to write a book series for kids. I said, oh my goodness. So she's already drafted the first seven, I think of the nine. Ukrainian illustrator, beautiful woman who did all the artwork. It's a really fun project. I can't wait to share more. Well, lovely. And first things first, I do also want to mention your first book. I'm sure of many, this is volume one. And then look at this. I can't spin it on my finger like Jim Quick, but uh, is that crazy or what? <laughs> this is a phenomenal achievement coming out November 14th, right? Yep. So I know it's going to be hard to summarize given the heft and content here, but how would you summarize this in your elevator pitch? What is Yeah, it's interesting too, because I just, I just get, gave out, what do we have personally handed basically a hundred of the books to the CEOs of the Conscious Capitalism event. And I, I came up with kind of that, that quick elevator pitch in the process, which is kind of funny. So Arate is how you pronounce the book's title. It's the one word answer. The ancient Stoics and the ancient Greek philosophers like Aurelius and Epictetus and Seneca and then Aristotle, Plato and Socrates would give to how to live a good life. Arate. So it's an ancient Greek word that we translate as virtue or excellence, but it means something closer to expressing the best version of yourself moment to moment to moment. So it's, of course, the one word summation of my life's work and philosophy. I've got it tattooed on this forearm. And that, that's the idea of arate. And then there are seven objectives in the book, which parallel the seven objectives in everything we do in the app, the heroic app, the coaching program, et cetera. But then it, it's got some heft to it because I had to decide, you know, am I going to write a normal 200, 300 page kind of fluffy book? No disrespect, but for me, it would have been a certain type of book. Or am I going to go all in and, and create a book that, that shares the absolute best ideas that I've kind of studied? So anyway, the book has 451 
of the most life-changing ideas that I've, I've personally learned and studied over the last essentially 20 years now. And 451 is significant because it takes 451 degrees to make fire, to ignite fire. So there's an activation energy point at which one thing becomes something else. You want to boil water, 200 degrees won't do it, 210 won't do it, 212 degrees Fahrenheit is what you need. You want to start a fire, it's 451 degrees. So the idea is, Arate, activate your heroic potential, a lot of ancient wisdom and modern science to help people move from theory to practice to mastery. Each micro chapter is like two to three pages long. You can get in and get out. You start from page one and go through if you want. And we're really excited about it. I appreciate you holding it up. And yeah, that's that's the basic idea with the book. When you think about your ideal reader for Arate, what do you want them to come away with? Great question. I think of an individual, anyone this deep in a conversation like this is the ideal reader, full stop. So it's someone passionate about understanding how to live a more noble, heroic life from my frame. We know we're capable of more. And this is Joseph Campbell. So why we resonate with all the stories we see on the movie screens and other, other contexts is those heroes are representative of us. We know we are capable of more. So first and foremost, my, my admonition is you're the hero we've been waiting for. We are facing historically significant challenges from my vantage point. We'll look back at this time, 500 years from now, and it's this is a moment. These are historically significant challenges. So first and foremost, you're the hero we've been waiting for. Quit looking outside yourself. You're the one we need to show up powerfully for your two daughters or for your, your family, for your community, for your colleagues, et cetera. And then you can be that best, most heroic version of yourself. And it's harder than you may want it to be, but it's not as hard as you think it will be. And so then breaking down, you know, the ancient wisdom and the modern science and really practical tools. So my hope is that the individuals feel resonance with the way that I share these ideas and, and it helps them create, if they need the scaffolding, the scaffolding in their life to get energized and feel more productive and connected but to express that next best version of themselves and to bring more meaning and more joy and more creativity in our context to their lives, more love, of course, and just vitality and enthusiasm for life. That would be the now long answer to your short question. <laughs> that is a beautiful answer. And I love how you have distilled the wisdom of over 600 books that you've done Philosopher's Notes on at this point, right? And so if anyone's interested in heroic, that's a fantastic platform to learn the best of the best in personal development and philosophy and health of every dimension. And it also represents how you distill that down into how is it actually put into place in, in your presence? Because like you, I've read hundreds of these books over the years, starting with my own flashpoint of living in a, a halfway house with my dad and having a very traumatic event that kind of made me not just curious, but it made it a life or death scenario for me to understand how people operate. And yet that can also lead to a lifetime of analysis paralysis and just always seeking for the next shiny object that's going to solve everything, you know? And I'm wondering how you navigate all of that collected wisdom over the decades and synthesize it so beautifully into something that just feels present and practical. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the frame. And I can also feel, again, all of us have been 
traumatized, you know, and hurt. We've all gotten knocked around. And to use that to forge strength in those places where we felt weakest and then to give that gift to others is, is my one of my primary motivations. But the way that we frame it up that I think there's a logical coherence to all the ideas in, in the book and in everything that I do. And the, the brief tour through the seven objectives, if I can just kind of give that frame. And again, I've obsessed about this for the better part of the last 20, 25 years now. How do you take all this ancient wisdom, all the modern science and make it hyper practical in the modern world? And again, we're proud of the scientific research we've done that has established the fact that the stuff that we're talking about and the way that we frame it in heroic and in the, well, we haven't studied the book, but the way that we frame it in, in heroic works. Sony Libomirsky, one of the premier researchers, studied our 300-day program that's based on the ideas I'm going to share in a moment, and she saw results that she said she's never seen in 35 years, sustainably changing basically every measure. And we haven't even talked much about the corporate work we just did, but we brought people from the 53rd percentile flourishing to the 70th in 30 days with four one-hour weekly coaching sessions. If someone hit one target in our app a day, their energy increased 23% in 30 days without the coaching. All they had to do is set up their protocol, know who they were at their best and hit one target. And there's a reason for that. But the basic idea is we have seven objectives. The first most important objective, they're all tied for first most important, but the first objective is you gotta know the ultimate game. And Covey used to say that it's like climbing a ladder. And if you get to the top of the ladder and you look down and you realize you put it on the wrong wall, oh shoot. It's David Brooks's two mountains. There's the first mountain, then there's the second mountain. It's a life of deep meaning, intrinsic motivation, longer chat. The second object, but you got to know the ultimate game. And you got to know you've been seduced to play the wrong game, hedonic, vis-a-vis -vis eudaimonic pleasures. The second objective we talked about, forging anti-fragile confidence. So you want to know the ultimate game is to be your best self, to deepen your personal relationships, and to make a contribution, intrinsic motivations. The second objective is forge anti-fragile confidence. You got to know it's supposed to be hard. Nothing's wrong with you because you are experiencing challenges. So we've been seduced to play the wrong game. Then we've been told it should be easy. Anyway, to forge anti-fragile confidence, you need to get clarity on who you are at your best and do that more consistently as we discussed, especially we don't feel like it. Moving on, knowing I'm going quickly, objective three is to simplify it all and to make it concrete. We call it the big three energy, work, and love. Freud said a good life comes down to work and love. I say yes, but if your energy is not good because of poor lifestyle choices, you'll have a tough time showing up powerfully in your work or your love. Then you got to bring it all into today and make today a masterpiece. So now you know the game you're playing, you're forging anti-fragile confidence, you're optimizing your big three, energy, work, and love today. Not New Year's resolutions, and I forget about it until next New Year's. Every day, as you know in our app, we have you recommit in 60, 90 seconds. That's how people get 23% more energized. They get clarity on who they are and they do the simple things they know they do when they're at their best. The fifth objective is master yourself. It's the art and science of behavioral change. Most people, to use BJ Fogg's frame, when they fail to change their behaviors, they think it's a character flaw. They think something's wrong with them. And then they feel shame and they give up. He says, what if it's a design flaw, not a character flaw? What if you were never taught how to install or delete habits? It's a really important idea that we talk about. Then we get into objective six, 
dominate your fundamentals in which I go through eating, moving, sleeping, breathing, and focusing your attention. And then all that leads us to objective seven, which I playfully call activate your superpower. I call your superpower soul force. It's a Gandhi phrase. Gandhi came up with the idea of soul force. And the way I frame it up is who are your favorite heroes or some of your favorite heroes, Jeremy? Oh, good question. Comes to mind. Bruce Lee, Socrates, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Andre Lord. That's putting me on the spot. Let's, let's go there. So let's just go with Bruce Lee and Socrates. Sure. It would be hard to think of two different types of people, right? So I often juxtapose Gandhi and Winston Churchill. Gandhi was, you know, frail, would go days without eating or talking. Churchill's portly, rarely stopped talking. Those two guys didn't even like each other in the same era, of course. But they had one thing in common, which is in their presence, you felt them. They had a moral charisma, a soul force to them. So did Bruce Lee. So did Socrates. So did all of your favorite heroes, my favorite heroes, everyone's favorite heroes. So my whole thing is, so do you. When you live in integrity with your highest ideals, not perfectly, but more and more consistently, you activate your soul force. The ancient Chinese philosophers, their entire philosophy was grounded on getting to Wu Wei, effortless right action, effortless virtuous action, where you did the right thing without even having to think about it. There's a neuroscience to it. You have a moral charisma when you live in integrity with your highest ideals that the ancient leaders in China wanted because people follow people like that. So that's the whole point of the whole game is for each of us to activate our own idiosyncratic soul force that's palpable. Again, we can think of the, or the most alive person we know who's alive today. In their presence, you feel something. Well, we need to bring that latent potentiality within you and activate it. And again, each of us will do it in different ways and you can't do it someday. You got to do it today and you can't do it in the moments you feel like it. You got to do it, especially in the moments you don't feel like it. Like that's the call to heroism for me, that potential is latent within each of us. But the coherence of those seven objectives we found to be resonance with many people who want the integration of ancient wisdom, modern science, frankly, common sense that needs to become common practice and then doing it with fun. Bringing joy to it is a big part of, of how I aspire to show up. Those are the virtues I aspire to embody. You know, I've got a set of virtues I want to embody every day that we, you know, teach others how to figure out for themselves. But joy, we don't need any more joyless urgency. Bring joy to this moment. This is a sacred opportunity to be with you here right now and with whoever, you know, is engaged with this, watching or listening. And there's something about this dialogue and this dynamic that's deeply inspiring for me. But that's the frame that to be here with you talking about these ideas and hopefully igniting that desire and enthusiasm and confidence within those who are with us today. Goosebumps, as you would say. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you referenced the application. We've talked a lot about energy and I think love is a theme throughout as well. A lot about creativity. And as you know, I work in executive leadership development. So curious briefly on some of the recent revelations of heroic applied in the corporate world. Yeah. I mean, the short story is it works. So we knew that it worked with people who were already fans of my work. The challenge was, all right, what would happen in an environment in which people had never heard of me? They're not into self-development. Can we help them? And we ran a randomized controlled study with Sony Lubomirsky, 800 or so people in an organization split into three groups, control group, 
here's the app, Heroic App, good luck, and here's the app plus coaching. And it was in that analysis that we just got back a few weeks ago that I we got the data I shared with you. But I'm, I'm so excited about being able to translate these ideas into a meaningful paradigm that works, whether you're natively into this stuff. And again, anyone who's this far into our chat is into this stuff. <laughs> but how do we do our best to live it such that we can be an example of it which from my vantage point is always the most powerful teaching tool. You want to lead your executives or your team, be the change you want to see, to quote Gandhi. You know, Walt, Ralph Waldo Emerson says, who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you say. So you have to be the embodiment of the ideals you aspire to be for your kids, to use the parenting example, for your colleagues and for your team. But that, that's what's most exciting for me, to be able to translate these ideas, hopefully in an engaging and effective manner. And that's what we've gotten most recently. Again, a lot of different nuances to it, but that's what arises. Thank you so much, Brian. You've been so generous in this past hour or so, and your work has been life-changing to me. I hope that's apparent. And now with your your book coming out, I think it's just going to be that much more impactful that even more people will discover Heroic and, and your book, Arate. Is there anything else you'd like to share as we wrap up? No, I felt the same for you. Yes, thank you. Bless you. I appreciate your presence and who you are and how you show up and your beautiful blend of humility and wisdom and generosity and graciousness and just our dialogue. I really am grateful. I feel like you help bring out the best in me. And uh, I'm grateful <laughs> for you and our friendship and just so excited about all that's in store and sending love to your girls. And uh, let's go. Heroic families unite. Thank you so much, Brian. All right, brother. Thank you. Brian Johnson's new book is called Arate, Activate Your Heroic Potential. For more information about the book, about heroic and other related resources, visit jeremyrichards.com.